This podcast is presented by the Prince George's County Memorial Library System. We must, we must, we must increase our bus. The bigger, the better, the tighter, the sweater, the boys are depending on us. I don't know. That part. I gotta put the whole thing in then. Isn't that awful? You got the extended cut. Yeah, that, that is terrible. Hi, I'm Kelsey. I'm Heather. And this is our podcast, These Books Made Me. Today, we're going to be talking about Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret by Judy Bloom. Friendly warning as always, this podcast contains spoilers. If you don't yet know what teen softies are, proceed with caution. Quick content warning, much like the book, we'll be discussing topics like puberty and teen sexuality in this episode. And we have two special guests this week. Could each of you introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Vanessa. I work at the Glen Arden Library, and I'm so glad to be here to get today. Hi, I'm Shannon, and I work at the Largo Kettering Library via the Surratt's Clinton Library. And I'm happy to be here today to discuss a book that I think I read when I was about nine or 10 years old. And it was a book that I heard about from other girls at school. So it was like, oh, we have to read it. So what about you all? Have you all read it before or... Was this your first time reading it? I also read it about the same age as you, Shannon. And I think it was very similar at my school. Everyone read it early and then talked about it. So yeah, I think I was in third or fourth grade. And my real memory attached to this book was that it inspired me and my best friend to our poor moms to go and like basically confront our moms one time when we were at the playground and they were sitting and talking and having mom talk. And we went up and we were like, we want to talk about periods. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think this book was like kind of a rite of passage book for a lot of girls my age. Yeah, I, I, this is my first time reading this book, believe it or not. I don't know how I made it through my youth without reading it because it it was everywhere. Like I knew about it. I knew it was like the taboo book, you know, but I, and I read like all the other Judy Bloom books, but this one just, I never got to it for some reason. So it was, it was very interesting to read it as an adult for the first time. And for me, I also heard a lot about this book when I was a kid, but I never read it. I think it was like a forbidden topic to have in our household. Um, so I was, this was my first time actually reading it through and I found it to be such a sweet story when I was expecting something a little more hairy. Yeah, it's not nearly as a uh, risque. Risque as it's made out not to be. Not at all. <laughs> Well, Vanessa, do you want to give us a little plot summary? Yes. Margaret Simon, a soon-to-be 12-year-old girl from West 67th in Manhattan, is a little shell-shocked, honestly, when just before Labor Day, her parents suddenly rent out their apartment and move their small family to a house in the quiet suburb of Farbrook, New Jersey. Anxious and stressed about the upheaval, Margaret secretly calls on God to share her problems with. She talks to God about everything, friends, family, even Moose Freed, her secret crush. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. We're moving today. I'm so scared, God. I've never lived anywhere but here. Suppose I hate my new school. Suppose everybody there hates me. Please help me, God. Don't let New Jersey be too horrible. Thank you. But before Margaret's even had a chance to get her bearings, her new neighbor, Nancy Wheeler, thrusts herself along with her friends, Gretchen and Janie, into Margaret's life as Margaret struggles to adjust to her new school and the strange culture of the suburbs. She's happy to belong to her new friend's secret club where they talk about private subjects like boys, bras, and getting their first periods. Margaret really realizes she's in a different world when people in Farbrook are super concerned with what religion she is. 
This is a bit of a sore spot with Margaret, since truth be told, she doesn't have a religion. See, Margaret's the product of a Christian mom and a Jewish dad who eloped to be together. And now Margaret's stuck in the suburbs with no church, no synagogue, and no clue about whether she should join the Jewish Community Center or the Christian YMCA. So Margaret makes her way through sixth grade the best she can. She tries out a bunch of different religions to see if one fits. She meets her long-lost grandparents. She gets a crush on an older boy. She spends a lot of time worrying about when she'll get her period, which to her delight comes just after her 12th birthday. Growing up isn't easy, and Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret takes us back to the thoughts and feelings of preteens as they navigate the path to adulthood. And now I'll dive in on a biography of our author, Judy Bloom, an anti-censorship advocate and acclaimed author who uses her works to depict the complicated interior lives of teen and tween girls. Judy Bloom was born in Elizabeth, New Jersey in 1938. She describes her upbringing as culturally Jewish. She married John Bloom in 1959 and she had two children with him and she received a degree in education in 1961 from New York University. She began writing while her children were in daycare and her first book was a picture book entitled The One in the Middle is the Green Kangaroo. Bloom reflected back on that time in her life when she first began to write when she received the National Book Award Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters in the 2000s. And in her speech, she explained how she found writing in the following way. For a while in my 20s, I became disconnected, not from books, but from my inner life. I adored my children, but inside was an empty space, a gnawing, an ache that I couldn't identify, one that I didn't understand. The imaginative, creative child grows up and finds that real life, no matter how sweet, is missing some essential ingredient. I was physically sick with one exotic illness after another in those years, but once I started to write, my illnesses magically disappeared. I found an outlet for all that emotion, all that angst. Writing saved my life and it changed it forever. Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret was her third title, published in 1970, and it was the book that launched her into mainstream success. She went on to write more than 25 books for all ages from children to adults, though she is most well known for her young adult work and for her frank conversations around puberty, sexuality, racism, religion, divorce, and more. Topics which have led her to be one of the most banned and challenged authors in America and a staunch advocate for free speech. She divorced John Bloom in 1975 and went on to have another short-lived marriage before marrying her current husband, George Cooper, in 1987. She's won many awards, including a Library of Congress Living Legends Award in 2000. In 2016, she founded an independent nonprofit bookstore in Key West with her husband. Also, as a side note, Upon researching, I found that she looks exactly the same in every picture I have ever seen of her, whether from the 1970s to 2000s or now, and I am convinced she does not age. Yeah, Judy Bloom is kind of a boss. (laughs) How do you all think that the book holds up now? It's 50 years old. How does it read in today's times? It's so innocent. It's so um, playing in the sprinkler, making new friends so quickly, not so many diversions from what's right in front of you. It was kind of refreshing. Yeah, I think it's uh, when it came out and when I read it, weren't that far apart from each other. So um, so when I, I think, read it as a child, I think it reminded me of my childhood. And then when I read it now, it brought back memories of my childhood, like, like Vanessa said, playing in the sprinkler or just, um, you know, somebody just coming to your house when you move in. And saying, hey, come on over. And, and your that mom you could says, go. fine. Right. Yeah, go on over. 
So, yeah, I think it, it has a lot of innocence. And I don't know if reading it now, you, you just see a different world now. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I think that's true. I also think like a lot of it still feels very current. Like I didn't I, reading it. I didn't think that if I hadn't known it was written in the 70s, I don't think I would have been like, this is obviously from the 70s. Like a lot of the issues are still current. A lot of the ways she writes about the issues still feel current to me. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic of like, obviously some of the cultural like aspects of childhood are different, but like not that different. I don't know. I think I agree. I mean, there's there's no references in there to sort of the modern trappings of society, right? Nobody texts anybody. There's essentially no technology in it. I mean, I guess, you know, she talks about traveling maybe by plane to see her grandmother and then they talk about the trains, but those still both exist. So it doesn't like those don't really pigeonhole it in any way. But at the same time, the lack of technology almost dates it because there's no reference to that, right? They're going to each other's houses all the time. They're writing letters, writing letters, Um, even the school project, you know, when they're researching in the library. But at the same time, I think the lack of really anything that's a date you never hear a year. You never hear any like pop culture references, I don't think, other than the period products that they mm-hmm. end up using. I think that lets the sort of emotional heft of it stand. Yep. You know, the the issues are very similar. Like kids do still worry about their changing bodies and they worry about who's going to develop first and are they normal and are they growing correctly or fast enough? They worry about religion and fitting in, you know, her parents' relationship and the friction with her mother's family, like that seems very relevant today. We have polarizing issues like that where people, you know, really diverge on topics of religion or, you know, political issues that sort of break up family. So like in that way, I agree that that stayed pretty fresh in spite of it being a very innocent book compared to probably what I had recalled. Because I remember like, I think like you, Shannon, I remember it being like, a, oh, this is kind of a racy book, you know? (laughs) Yeah. But it's really not. (laughs) I think if anything, she comes across younger than she probably did when it was written. Like Mm -hmm. as when it was written, it was probably like, oh, this is like teen. And now I definitely think of it as like preteen. Like I don't even know, though, back in that time, if there was a term preteen. Yeah. You were a child, and then you were a teenager. teenager. Right. Yeah. They named their club the Preteen That's Sensations, which did. is the worst name for a club of all time. <laughs> the four PTSs is like, it's so hard to say, and it's just very goofy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's very squarely in that like 8 to 12 range. This is not a teen book. Like yeah. I cannot imagine giving this to a teenager today. But like also part of that is, you know, this is so locked into puberty, right? Like that is the slice of life that it's it's capturing. That has gotten much earlier for girls than it was 50 years ago. I yeah. mean, that's just the reality. Like the the average onset of puberty is much younger than it used to be. So I think that might be part of also why it feels a lot younger to us than it probably did when it came out. One thing that they have updated in more recent editions is the period products themselves. So it used to be a sanitary belt. In the most current editions, it's a um, adhesive disposable pad. So I feel like that would have stood out as like, oh, this is <laughs> this is an older book if they had not changed that. Yeah, and it sounds like they actually made that change 
really fairly early in the run of the book because Judy Bloom had a blog on her website about making that change with her editor for the edition that came out. And it was because they had gotten a lot of people writing in um, about the book and, and saying like, oh, I love this book, but no one uses these anymore, you know, and right. just sort of wanting it to be more relevant, I guess. But then it's kind of sad because like, yeah, we're still just using pads. Like, <laughs> <laughs> One big leap and then no leaps. No, no progress <laughs> since then. Yeah. And um, Vanessa, I think when you're prepping for this episode, you and I talked a little bit about it's it's not really the most other than the kind of discussion of religion. It's not really the most diverse book. At least it's not really mentioned that she sees anyone who's not white in her day to day life. No, I actually did a little research on that before we came in today because I was like, is there a term for that? And maybe you all have heard of this before, the white assumption, Mm. um, where authors take specific care to describe the skin tone of non-white characters, of which there aren't any that I recall from this book, while not doing the same for their white counterparts. So the assumption is that everybody is white and very similar, but then, you know, even within that category of white people, there are the Jews, the Christians, Mm -hmm. the non-believers, um... So that was a just a it is a I think it's a issue of the time when these books were written. It was that was considered normal and to to write differently would have been considered weird. It reminded me a lot of we did Harriet the Spy mm-hmm. before and it was written in a similar time period and a a very similar sort of community of people, right? It's this like affluent neighborhood and the mm-hmm. people that live there um but you're right. Like, there's very little physical descriptor of anyone in the book. It is just, you just assume everyone's Laura, white. Who's well-developed and tall. Yes. <laughs> Shun, right. I also wanted to mention, just thinking about what you were talking about a minute ago with uh, puberty and its onset becoming earlier. And I cannot speak for the entire black community. I can only speak for the people with whom, you know, in my family and with whom I was associated. But for us, a lot of us got our periods at young ages, at 10, at 11. So... It was sometimes I even know girls who were nine. So it, I don't know if though that's another cultural difference in the book written from the perspective of a white person about other white people. I don't know. But that doesn't mean all black. I do know black people who still didn't get their periods till they were 14 or 16. Yeah, I was like 13. So it was and I don't know that I knew too many people either that, you know, where I, where I lived or people I went to school with. And I think most of the people were like in middle school. So 11, 12, 13 when they got their period. I and I don't know that the... I knew anybody that was really young. I did know people that were younger that developed breasts because, you know, you mm-hmm. get your breasts first. So you and I, I knew those. that like in fifth grade. <laughs> yeah. I knew people like in fifth grade that were wearing a bra and, you know, and needed like a pretty sizable bra. Not, <laughs> not, <laughs> not a grow. the grow. <laughs> <laughs> what I does that remember right? it being a big issue between like fourth and sixth grade mm-hmm. in elementary mm-hmm. school. A lot of fifth grade angst and the girls who got stuff and the girls who didn't get stuff and the way they were treated or attracted, yeah. not attracted to, who's attracted to a fourth grade boy, but um, <laughs> it just became issues, which mirror a lot of the things that are brought up in this book. Mm -hmm. So I think that the voice that um, Bloom put on Margaret was just perfect because you Mm -hmm. could just, you could feel what she felt. She did a wonderful job with that, I think. Yeah, it was very relatable. I mean, I think breasts are a big focus of this book. You know, there's Laura, who is clearly the early bloomer for their class, and she's described as looking very mature and womanly. Though I will say, 
the Nancy's obsession with their teacher, Mr. Benedict, having the hots for Laura was really disconcerting <laughs> to me. I was really confused by that. And I wasn't quite sure if we were supposed to read that as like, geez, Nancy, get your head out of the gutter sort of thing. Or if we were supposed to assume that he was, in fact, like flustered by a flustered sixth grader, by this poor girl who's just living her life and going to school. Um, that was a little bit unclear to me, but I felt like it was, it's so relatable. Like we all knew who Laura was. Like, mm -hmm. and I, I bet all of us could name the Laura from our class, you know, the first girl that looked like a woman and how awful that must've been for, you know, those girls and like the attention that they got from boys that they didn't want, the attention that they got from girls that I'm sure right. they didn't want. The assumption that they were fast, like, you know, all of the rumors that Margaret's friends have about Laura being, you know, in the alley with yeah, boys and the A&P. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, you know, that's a, a sadly relatable thing because I don't think that's changed. I mean, we're looking at 50 years since this was written, but I feel like probably all of us experienced that when mm -hmm. we were in school. Certainly my daughters still, they could tell you who the Laura of their class was. Well, I have to tell you when the, the book started and Margaret moved to her new neighborhood and a few pages in, Nancy shows up. I'm like, oh no, Nancy's like that friend that you want your child to stay away from Nancy who spreads rumors and starts a club and excludes people and, you know, tells you how to dress. And it's, it's like, oh, can you find an, another nice girl who's like you? <laughs> but she does make things interesting. So I appreciate that. Yeah, that's what I wrote. I wrote Nancy is very bossy because <laughs> when I read it the first time, I kind of glossed over that. And then when I read it the second time, I was like, why is she so bossy? Nancy's getting on my nerves. <laughs> yeah. But you know what I like is like she gets on Margaret's nerves too. Uh -huh. yeah. Like yeah. Margaret Margaret doesn't really let her boss her around. Like mm -hmm. when she wants to read her boy book and she only questions Margaret's choices, Margaret's like, you didn't ask anyone else. She's not like she doesn't really let her feel ashamed by it. And I think that's really good representation to see of like I'm standing up to this person. I think kids need to see that. Well, yeah. I think that's very true to how kids are. Well, you have your little group, like your close group, and it is almost like siblings. Like you can say things to each other like that where it's like, what's your problem? And it's OK. Yeah. And I think Judy Bloom writes those relationships really, really well. Like all of the relationships in the book feel extremely true to how kids mm -hmm. actually are, how they interact with each other, how they think. And I think that's pretty universal, even though we're saying like, OK, well, maybe this was a little bit young. Like this wouldn't be how a 12 year old would be today, but it might be how a nine year old is. I like how we see later when because Nancy sends the postcard of, you know, I got my period. But then when she really gets her period and Margaret's there with mm -hmm. her and Nancy's like hysterical, I think it like kind of brings her down to show that, mm -hmm. you know, Margaret's just she can see Nancy for who she really is. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, Nancy, you thought you were great and you said all these things, but you're really a liar. Well, and it, it did make me feel a little empathetic for Nancy. Like she's just trying to fit in like all the rest of mm -hmm. them. And she got kind of put in her place a little bit. And then she's trying to suck up to Margaret so that she doesn't tell everyone because now she has <laughs> like she she has as much shame as, as the rest of them do mm -hmm. around this stuff. She just presents it differently. I thought of Nancy as like the queen bee. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is that happens at all ages. There's yeah. the mm -hmm. queen bee in your neighborhood, at work, you know, at your different social groups or other organizations you're in. 
So the types of um, interactions among the kids are the types of interactions people have throughout their lives. It's just more innocent when you're 11 going on 12. So we brought up the focus on breasts in the book. Um, the going to buy a bra is a big piece of this story. And it's another thing where Nancy kind of drives the action on it because Nancy's like, well, when you come for next week's club meeting, you better be wearing a bra. And <laughs> I'm going to poke your back to make sure you're wearing it. <laughs> and so like half the girls in the club are like, oh, no, now I have to go buy a bra with my mom. And they run into each other at this store picking up their their new bras. It's interesting how many ways that gets worked into the story. Obviously, Laura, who's more developed, she brings up her dad's Playboy magazines, which is something that I suppose if, if Playboy ever goes under, that will date the book somewhat because it will be a, an artifact. But that actually read is pretty current. Now it still exists. I, I guess Playboy not went in out of print. Hard copy. Okay. Right. But like the, the reference to dad's got a pornographic magazine or access to porn or something like I think that that was still somewhat relevant that that is like it's a lot of ways that kids find out about things right it's just on the internet now versus in a hard copy magazine and then they had the chant to try to like increase their bus size when they're doing their exercises we don't know where this originated but I remember hearing it as a child I don't think I was in any way shape or form ready to have breasts but I knew the chant, but they actually used to say that. There's so many sexist things in this book that make me cringe, but were perfectly normal for the time. And and sort of hand in hand with the innocence of the childhood in the book, going along with that is in today's society with all our different ways to reach out, you've got all your, your social media, you can sit in your home and watch TV by yourself. You can work remotely, so you can be very independently different. But in our culture back in this time, when this book refers to, or even before, there's so much um, emphasis on conformity. Who are you? What are you? Where do you go? What do you wear? Who do you talk to? You know, you have, and you're shunned to some degree if you can't be put into a a little box. So yay, a small yay for today's world. (laughs) Yeah, It's that's interesting that you bring that up, Vanessa, because I think that actually presents itself in a few different ways in the book. The gender roles, like you're saying, like there's a lot of sort of baked in misogyny to a lot of pieces of this. You know, Margaret's mother is described as, well, she stays home and she paints. And like her painting is definitely viewed as this like unimportant time killer. She's not even good at it. Yeah, no. like her dad says when she gifts them, people probably just store them in the attic. Right. Yeah. But Which no one even like, wants it. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also disheartening because her dad's mother, Sylvia, I think is a really good counterexample to some of the negative gender roles. Like Sylvia's out there doing her own thing. Yeah. Like she is living her life. She went to Florida, got a man. <laughs> Brought him back. Like, <laughs> he's clearly just going to do whatever she wants him to do. Mm-hmm. She doesn't take any, like, nonsense from anybody. Like, you can tell she just, it's. Yeah, she seems to have, like, her own money mm-hmm. because she can, you know, they have, like, a subscription to Lincoln, Lincoln Center. Center. Yeah. And, you know, and she stays in Florida for, Winters you know. in Florida. Yeah, she, and goes on a cruise, yeah. which, you know, that wasn't a, you know, it wasn't like the days of carnival where everybody went on a cruise. Mm-hmm. This was only, you know, certain people went on cruises. So I wonder if part of what makes that difference is Sylvia has no husband. 
We don't really hear a lot about her husband. Did he die and leave her with a whole bunch of money so she can go on cruises and get that Lincoln Center, you know, season pass and all of that? So she is more seen as the independent, free-willed person who isn't beholden to any man because she's not married. So I don't know if that was a thing of the times. You can get married and hope your husband dies and leaves you. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I love Sylvia. She was great. Like, definitely... I think my favorite character in the book, like she just was the voice of reason a lot of times. She just handled things really well, I thought. It was just kind of refreshing to see somebody that's like, oh boy, you know, her uh, daughter-in-law's family is extremely bigoted about uh, their Judaism and then Margaret's atheism because they've made this conscious choice to not raise Mm -hmm. her in either religion because they viewed that as something that, you know, tore their families apart. And Sylvia was still just super understanding, I felt like, of the whole situation Mm -hmm. and just kind of rolled with it and gave this like very healthy example to Margaret of like, there's no convincing some people, but, you know, you just kind of move on Mm -hmm. and like, we just keep going and I'm always here for you. And Mm -hmm. she's a great resource to Margaret throughout the book. You know, they have this very close relationship where they're talking all the time and Margaret seems very at ease with her in a way that like maybe not as much with her own mother. Mm -hmm. I almost felt like Sylvia, she loved her daughter and her granddaughter, that the way she approached sharing her religion with the granddaughter was more like the water torture torture where you have like one drop. (laughs) It doesn't hurt, but she just she's just consistent. She's just there. You'll never forget that Jew, you know, that Jewish tradition is in the family. But I, I think that was like health, so much healthier in a lot of ways than how her parents approach it, which is like, if you even mention religion, we're going to have like a total meltdown. Like <laughs> we're trying so hard to raise you atheists that we're actually like stressing you out or like raise you so you can make your own choices that we're like actually making this more stressful than if we had just told you what to believe. They're telling themselves that they're letting her pick her own path, but then they're if she's picking a path that's different from them, they're like not actually handling it very well. And so I think she appreciated having someone to say like, hey, this is what I believe. Like, I'd love if you believed it too, but like, you know, let's explore that together. Mm -hmm. I feel like that was the role model that she got from Sylvia. It's almost like they just didn't give her any, well, not almost as if they didn't give her any education Mm -hmm. in religion. You don't have to propose that you believe in a certain religion, but there's no harm in sharing what all these different religions are. But I mm-hmm. agree with Margaret that 12 is an awfully old age to try to figure out what religion you want to be. Well, and she was, <laughs> poor thing, she was so clueless and moved into this community where you know, that became a very like social status mm-hmm. indicator. Is like, if you're Jewish, you go to the JCC. And if you're Christian, you go to the Y. And she's put on the spot with like, well, which do you go to? And she's like, I don't know. So like they haven't really given her the tools to navigate this at all Mm -hmm. she doesn't feel like she fits then anywhere and so she's trying all of these things to see where might I fit and that's probably pretty hard you know when you're you're just trying on other people's cultural identity because you haven't really been given one of your own Mm -hmm. and maybe that's not fair to the parents like maybe they would say like oh well atheism is a cultural identity of its own but it clearly isn't in the society that they're like living in. And it seems to make that difficult for their child because she feels very at sea. And I think it was interesting when I read it now, when I read it as a kid, I I don't know what I was thinking about. I think I, I just believed the hype of the puberty part. Mm-hmm. I had no idea about this whole religion thing. 
Cause, it didn't I mean, stick with me either. Yeah. I mean, either. When I got to that, I was like, wow, I don't even remember that being a good part. Right. I didn't even remember that being a whole, I mean, you, you know, it's already there, God. The I knew she parts. talked to God. <laughs> right. I knew she talked to God, but I just thought, but I never thought about, you know, uh, Jewish, Christian, anything like that. And I think that was just because just in life as a child, you just are your religion. And, you know, and I don't think I had the experience of choosing. So I was... You know, I went to church. I did this. So I think that whole thing escaped me. And so when I read it now, I was like, wow, that was more prominent than I uh, remember. So, yeah. Well, it's interesting how Judy Bloom puts those things together. Like Vanessa, you mentioned she says 12 is an awfully old age to start thinking about your religion. She also earlier in the book says like she's already like 12 is an awfully early age to start learning about puberty. Right. Like she's talking about like these things are things we need to talk with kids about younger and, and give them the tools and help prepare them. and and not be so afraid to like introduce the concepts to them because then they're going to have a crisis when they're a teenager or older because <laughs> they've never thought about it before. Kelsey, I remember I have, I'm the youngest of three sisters. And I remember it was, we would set the table for dinner every day. We had dinner at the kitchen and it was time to put out the napkins and there weren't any napkins in the normal place. I knew there were some in the closet where in the hall where the toilet paper was. So I got out the napkins and put them on the table. And my mother came out and said, oh, no, those are those are not the right kind of napkins because they were those big, thick, log-like sanitary. <laughs> because I didn't know. No one told me because I was considered to be too young. Yeah. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention is we were talking about the book, and this didn't, this didn't occur to me at the time while I was reading, but with Margaret and her exposure to religion and whatever friends she had, there's, there's, other than that she liked New York and she didn't like being near her grandma, we don't know. We never hear anything about any friends she's leaving behind, any mm -hmm. school. There must have been people who were Jewish or Christian or whatnot there. But I think it was a good decision to do it the way she did it because it just made it a cleaner beginning, didn't muddy mm -hmm. things more. When we were young, we would have just been reading this for all the, the skanky parts anyway. So. <laughs> yeah, we were reading it for the boobs. We were reading it for the periods. Like, yeah, I think we totally did mm -hmm. just skim past all the religious stuff. Because especially like reading it now, I was really struck by the scene where Laura goes to confession and then Margaret accidentally goes to confession. <laughs> And she, you know, she goes into the confessional and she's completely befuddled. She doesn't know what she's doing in there or what's happening. And she ends up running away from it. But like, I went to Catholic school and I'm sure like as a child, that must have struck me as funny, odd, something like I would have had some emotional response to it. But it's, it is funny that I've blocked that part of the book out completely. <laughs> and the things I remember were the like, the bra trying on, the like doing the like chest exercises. I don't know. Again, I think it's kind of like a rite of passage book. We've sort of talked about the way that like when you don't have all of the information, I think Judy Bloom certainly would be a person that would say kids deserve information. Like we should mm -hmm. give kids information early and frequently. And this book, I think, is an attempt to do that. And it's one of those books that gets challenged a lot because it does that. But so much of like I remember as a girl, the things that you learn from books you're not supposed to read. These books that were just sort of like whisper network, like, oh, there's some stuff in that book, you know, and that's where you would go and get information that you weren't going to get certainly from your parents. Like maybe you'd get it from an older sister or, you know, the fast girl that you 
were friends with, (laughs) but like you weren't going to get it from your parents. And so you would find things out through books. And I do think that that goes back to Kelsey when you were talking about it not seeming dated. I think that's the one way where this does seem because you'd you'd look it up on the internet. Like kids today don't have to do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess I didn't have to do that. Like I had the internet when I was a kid too, but like we had a shared computer at my house. Like I wasn't going to like go look up certain things on the internet on the one computer that we had in my home. It's the middle of the living room. (laughs) Right. Like that would have been the same at 14 points. (laughs) But that probably would seem very foreign to kids today. So like I am curious about how we think this would hold up for a kid reading it now. Well, I mean, I do think that most kids... Like if we're saying we think this is probably better suited for like an eight to 10 year old, most of them don't have independent Internet access yet. I mean, <laughs> well, they have phones, Kelsey. Not <laughs> when they're eight. Yeah. <laughs> OK, well, they're only starting, I would think, to get that. Yes. So this is like I could see as a parent being like, this is a better way to pass this information along if I don't want to have this conversation. <laughs> so. well, wouldn't you have like a filter? on there or I mean I don't know I just know that with my kids from third grade on it has been an issue with the teachers like having to write emails to talk to people about like their kids devices at Uh, school mm -hmm. my child can get around any filter yeah they have so much more time than you have (laughs) if you can get on YouTube you can find out anything that you want to know and they can get on YouTube on their Chromebooks I think for an eight to nine year old the the thing that drew me into this book is it's, it's written in an easy way to read. It's humorous. She does a great job with the the relationship building and the the angst between dad and his mother. But mm-hmm. they never bother to go into all that detail because the kids don't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I think the emotional part, if you took their phone away and they didn't have their Chromebook <laughs> <laughs> and there was no Wi-Fi nearby, um, yeah, they probably would read it. You can Google the facts. But you can't Google the feelings. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's, that's a true. really good way to put it. This would be a good one to listen to in the car when they're trapped. If you take all their devices <laughs> away. Yeah. I'm, I'm a mom want to listen to it with you. <laughs> yeah. We all listen to it together. They're sitting in the back. When they get to the parts that make everybody uncomfortable, we can all look different directions. <laughs> I did want to talk about when the scene when the grandparents actually come from wherever, the, Toledo. Yeah. They're from Ohio. Ohio somewhere. Yeah. I... I really appreciated the respect that, I mean, I guess just speaking to like the parent dynamics, the like moment of vulnerability that Judy Bloom gave the mom, like I was really angry that the mom canceled her trip to Florida to see these grandparents who have done nothing but disrespect them Yep, and didn't even have the courtesy to make sure the dates worked before they literally bought plane tickets. Like I was really angry. But then when they have that honest conversation with the mom of like, she's not going to be happy about this cancellation because like you canceled her trip for someone she doesn't even know. Her mom was like, this is complicated. I just need your support. You know, like Mm -hmm. speaking of someone who has complicated family dynamics, I was like, okay, I see you mom. Like I get that. (laughs) Like you can't explain why you need this and you know, it doesn't make sense. You know, you're being a little irrational, but like, I'm just gonna like, you just need to do this and that's what you need in this moment. And like, as the mom, as a parent to be like, I'm, (laughs) I'm struggling here and I need you to just support me. Like, I thought that was really cool for Judy Bloom to put in. Well, and I mean, I think that whole scene is very relatable to older readers too. You know, that's, everyone has some relationship with a person that they want it to be different than it is, you know, and that you are 
you're maybe not quite to that no contact point yet, even if maybe you should be, you know, and I think probably everybody relates to that on some level. And, and kids probably relate to that too. Either they've seen their family struggle with a family member that's difficult, or they themselves have a friend that they know isn't really good for them, but they really want that friend to care about them or, you know, they want to be in that person's social circle or whatever it is. Yeah, I thought that was a brave depiction of the messiness that is human relationships mm-hmm. and how, yeah, it's it's not as easy as saying, yeah, these are terrible people. Like, you shouldn't have to see them go with your grandma that's actually kind. I don't know. It was kind of heartbreaking because then they come and they're awful again. And how many kids books have like mean grandparents? That's not a thing. Yeah. No. Yeah. I think it, it, it was very real. I think Judy Bloom does that in a lot of her books. A lot of things are very real as mm-hmm. far as dynamics and it doesn't sugarcoat it. And you do have tenuous relationships with people and and it can be your grandparents. And like you said, all grandparents aren't necessarily nice or, you know, have your best interest at heart. And then when they just up and left, like, oh, we're going to go to New York. And they're like, oh, well, they were probably just coming to New York anyway and Mm -hmm. just, you know, decided to come over and see you. I mean, you don't necessarily have that. Everybody doesn't have that relationship. So I think the realism, I think, I think that's what draws people to her books. And I think that's what makes them, even though some of the things are dated, I think that's what bridges time is uh, the relationship. Mm-hmm. That's that's a great point. Because even though this is maybe a little bit more innocent than kids of this age would be now, Judy Bloom never condescends to the reader. Mm-hmm. So regardless of what age of child is reading this, I feel like they would never feel like they're getting half measures or that they're being talked to as a child. Mm-hmm. Like, because that is, a it, that's a pretty mature depiction of complications of family and and relationships. And I think that's a that's a strong argument for it holding up in spite of it maybe not being on exactly relatable to a kid today just because it's missing some of the tech pieces that are more mm-hmm. fundamental to childhood now. You know, this this discussion about the religion of the grandparents and how it impacts the story makes me wonder why Bloom chose to have the, she could have just as easily had the Jewish parents, two Jewish parents be, you know, disowning their Jewish child for marrying a Christian, but she went the other way, which I guess in that time period, the world, the U.S. was much more Christian than it is today. And I wonder if uh, people who are Jewish are more accustomed to people marrying away from their religion than Christians were in that time period. Still, I love Sylvia. I'm sorry. <laughs> I do, and, but you know what? I Margaret gets irritated with Sylvia, though, in the interactions as well. Sylvia's been a lot, like you said, the water torture. It's been a much more like subtle sort of like... <laughs> Consistent. You know, well, I'll just, these little reminders that you are Jewish and mm-hmm. like, we're going to get this food from the Jewish delicatessen and see this is like the real deal versus like whatever you can get here. And well, I'll take you to meet the rabbi. I'm so excited that you want to, to come to... to synagogue with me. It's a much gentler Mm -hmm. sort of religious thing, but it's still there. Like it's still clearly important to Sylvia. 
And Margaret does still rankle at the like animosity between them. I so, think yeah. Sylvia's in it for the long game. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and she's earned the right to to poke at Margaret a little more because she's there for her and mm-hmm. sees her as a whole person and mm-hmm. not like the granddaughter to like take to church and show off. She sees her as like someone that she loves and wants to have a great life. And that's just part of a value to her that she wants to pass along. Well, and I do wonder too, if Judaism is an ethnicity as well. It's not just the the religion. So there are plenty of people who identify as Jewish, but don't practice, right? And with Christians, I think that's less common. I think certainly you get that with cradle Catholics, um, where it's very like baked into your ethnicity and your cultural heritage in a way that maybe that makes it somewhat less pressing for Sylvia as well. And like that, maybe that's why Judy Bloom decided to go with the Jewish side of her family being a little bit more chill than the Christian side because she's she's viewing it as like, well, you're still Jewish. Even if you're not coming to synagogue, you're still Jewish. Like that's just what we are mm-hmm. in a way that like clearly the Hutchins are like they are appalled that she's not going to church and that she hasn't been baptized. And she, you know, it's all of this. In many ways, it's like uh, for some of the main characters in the book, Ju- Judy Bloom has turned them into caricatures. Mm-hmm. So Nancy is the caricature Queen Bee. Grandma is the caricature Jewish grandma. The Christian grandparents are the you know, caricatures of those. The mother is the stay-at-home mom who does nothing useful. Does she even, she does cook, you know, but she doesn't really have a strong purpose. She's just kind of a... I guess she does cook. I was going to say they have like help come in when her parents come to town. Yeah. True, true. I was kind of startled by this. Yeah, that was <laughs> odd too. Like, I guess like, that's wow. like a 60s thing. Yeah, yeah, where you have somebody come and help. Like if you're having more than just your family, you have like some help come in. To help you serve so that you, I guess, so that you're not like getting up and getting the food. You can't be inconvenienced. Yeah. With that. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, it's not, there weren't open kitchens. You know how now you have your open kitchen so you can interact with your guests. But, yeah. you I would know, if it's a different love room. to have someone come in and take care of those things. <laughs> oh, me too. But yeah, them? like that was very foreign to me as well, where it's like, do people do that? Did people do that? But I guess, I mean, well, again, they like are presented 60s. as definitely like upper middle class. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say this whole, the whole conversation about like choosing your religion and like what aspects you take with you is bringing me back to when I was growing up, I was raised Catholic, but my, gr- my grandmother was Presbyterian. And so I, I went to preschool at the Presbyterian church, but I went to church at the Catholic church. <laughs> and then my grandma would sometimes take me to the Presbyterian church with her. And I always wished I was Presbyterian because they had the better youth group. <laughs> they had a bowling alley in their church. We got grapefruit juice in church. I didn't get, I didn't, I couldn't have the wine at Catholic <laughs> church. So it just seemed more chill to me. And like, I always wish that like I had been, I had been raised <laughs> Presbyterian for all the like accoutrements, not for the actual religion. <laughs> Obviously, starting your period is a huge uh, through line of the book. Uh, It paces the action in a lot of ways Uh, for Margaret, who's looking forward to starting her period. Then when she finally gets it for the other girls in her social circle, how authentic did that feel to to everybody? Those sorts of uh, discussions that happened in the book about periods, boys, puberty, sex, Obviously, it's very tame on the sex front, but, you know, it's it's still sexuality, liking boys. I must say, when they went to the dinner party and the mom left the room, they just devolved into like 
little, it's kind of a combination of a four-year-old and, I don't know, the hormones went crazy. Yeah, so that was school. a funny scene. What, that was like Norman. Was that the kid's name? Yeah, and the, then the kids or all the boys. I thought that was typical. Like the that boys the don't mature as, you know, mm-hmm. uh, quickly as girls. So then the boys are throwing things on the ceiling. And, you know, when the mom left and the girls are kind of like, what's going on? So I think I thought that was a pretty good scene. And that is sort of that middle school is that age where you start to do co-ed parties, mm-hmm. you know, like you've done the like just girls like sleepovers or just mm-hmm. boys doing this. And then in middle school, you there always was some kid that was like the first to have the co-ed party or like you have like a youth group dance or something. So like it starts to get kind of pushed, mm-hmm. but like you're going together. I thought it was so funny when I was reading it. They called it two minutes in the closet, which I think probably has a different connotation now than... <laughs> It did at the time, but we called it seven minutes in heaven when yeah, I was a kid. Yeah, that's what I knew it as too. Well, I thought, I thought the first game he suggested was startling. <laughs> the one where they, the girls stand, they turn off the lights and the girls stand on one side and the boys just <laughs> run into each other. Guess how you feel. <laughs> like nothing. No. But then they said like just above the neck, which just seems like an awful game to have somebody like groping your face too, which, yeah, that was funny. Um, Any excuse to touch. It is. Yes. I did think it was nice that um, Norman Fishbein was his name. Uh, really demonstrated affirmative consent and enthusiastic consent during the like uh, two minutes in the closet game. It's like, can I kiss you now? Where can I kiss you now? (laughs) Very thoughtful. (laughs) And the cute boy that all the girls liked turned out to be a just a horrible, not horrible, yeah, but he not was a very nice kid. He was kind of gross. Philip, Le- Philip Leroy. Philip Leroy. Oh, yeah. yeah, he Everyone's was... number one on their bias list or whatever <laughs> they call their boy book. Boy book, yeah. That just made me so glad to not be that age. Oh, yeah. It's so awkward. <laughs> you know, if you, you ever offered the opportunity to go back in time to an age where you could start over again? I don't think anybody wants to be 11 again. Mm-mm. I do... Uh, very random, unrelated to anything tangent, but I feel like in our past episodes, we've been tracking the poor medical advice <laughs> yes. um, and all the different ways it suggested you might catch a cold. Um, and in this one, uh, Sylvia says that she probably got sick because her mom made her keep her boots on the boots. in the Lincoln Center. Yes, the sweaty feet made her sick. <laughs> that yeah. is a new one. It That's gets added to, to the wet hair. Gave me an ear infection and <laughs> killed my friend in Kirsten. Yes. Um, yeah. It's, there are funny little like uh, moments in the book of like specificity like that, too, where I feel like Judy Bloom is really good at capturing something about the people in the scene with a like tiny moment like that. So like the boots thing was a good one. But like just right at the beginning of the book when she's like sniffing her underarm to see, <laughs> like, do I stink? Do I need deodorant yet? Like I, that was so real. I feel like yeah. that was a, a great, she, she remembers childhood very well, I think. Or she observes kids in childhood mm-hmm. really well because, yeah, the party is like that too. Like that's exactly how a party like that would yeah. go. Like, with, mom, don't leave the room. Yes. <laughs> it devolves immediately. Stay and why there. was the mom surprised that it went off the rails? It was like, lady, come on. What did you think was going to happen? I love that she saw that it went off the rails and she was like, you are terrible. Okay, I'm going to leave you alone for two hours. <laughs> yeah, shame on you. Don't make me call your parents. And then she leaves again. <laughs> 
what I was going to say about um, the period also, I thought was interesting when Gretchen got her period and her mother told her that she would need to watch her weight from now on once she got her period mm-hmm. and wash her face. So I thought that was a interesting tidbit. Yeah, she that wasn't was washing her face until now. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like that. And there more bad medical advice. Right. So that, and then there was also uh, the scene when they were doing sort of the sex ed class at school, and they were mm. told like tampax, like no tampons are not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. not allowed you know it was this very like derogatory thing that like shocked me when i read it and i was like what do the girls on the swim team do but then i looked into it and wow yeah i had no idea there was this whole like culture of the idea that using a tampon means you're not a virgin mm-hmm. anymore yeah yeah another way to control women and girls bodies yep because it doesn't do anything to you. Except give you more freedom in your life. Um, we did touch on it a little bit um, about just censorship of this book. It consistently has rated in the top 100 banned books. Um, ALA keeps track of that. Uh, so it, it continues to be a frequently challenged book. So it's clearly relevant to someone, <laughs> even, even if it's maybe not as relevant to kids anymore. So I, I did want to just at least open up discussion on on that. And why do we think that is? Because again, we're saying this book is awfully tame. So why does it continue to be a source of dismay? I think just puberty and no matter what time period, parents, even though a lot of parents don't talk about things with their kids, They feel like they need to control when their kids get certain information, even though, you know, I'm not going to talk to you about that, but you can't read about it in a book. So I think that's just all through time is that you always have those type of parents that, you know, I don't um, I'm not going to talk to you about this, but I don't want you to read about it. So there's nowhere in between. And then now with the Internet, I don't know, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, because basically you have to ban the whole Internet. (laughs) (laughs) I suspect a lot has to do with the religious part of it, too. Mm -hmm. If they if that conflict didn't exist in the book, it wouldn't be as interesting. Nobody ever comes around in the end and they don't all go to church and they don't all, you know, get to be cozy with their Christian side so that she has, you know, a relationship with her Jewish grandma and her her Christian grandparents. I think when you um, don't embrace Christianity or you in this instance, they just sort of showed them out the door and kept on with their lives. I think that that can cause some hackles to go up. It's interesting how um, in the speech that I quoted, Judy Bloom's speech that I quoted when I was doing her author bio, she talks a lot about censorship too and about how she never anticipated becoming an activist and how angry she is now about like censorship of any kind. So it's interesting. I, I don't think that's what she set out to do is to like shock people or say things that would upset people. I think she genuinely just saw like, these are things kids need to know at this time in their life. And it's wild to me that parents don't want to talk about the stuff that is literally happening to their body. Like what, I I just don't know what people expect kids to do if you're not talking to it about them. And then they're shocked when changes are happening or they don't know how to navigate certain situations. It's uncomfortable, but we have to lean into the uncomfort. (laughs) Sometimes it's people and how they grew up Mm -hmm. and their own comfort. Mm -hmm. And so if you grew up in an where you call things the proper names, you know, body parts, the proper names and all this, then you're more comfortable talking to your children. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't grow up that way, then you feel like 
you know, your body is something to be ashamed of, Mm -hmm. you know, then you get this, you know, you get children who are surfing the web or, you know, getting books, Mm -hmm. you know. It also does make me wonder how often the people that are challenging it have read it themselves. Yeah. And I think that that comes up with a lot of book challenges. Um, You know, even on the level that we get book challenges here working in the library, I frequently will start the discussion, well, have you read the book? Mm -hmm. And like, let's engage in this conversation. Often they haven't. Um, And and so maybe I I wonder if that's playing in too, is that the book has gotten this reputation as being, Mm -hmm. you know, risque. And there's not much there. Like this is tamer than I would think most sex ed, even in our very poorly done sex ed here (laughs) would be. Um, But people make an assumption maybe that there's more. Or they just flip through to find the dirty words and they don't actually like have the context of how those words are being used. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For each episode, our luminous literarian and frequent co-host Hawa will provide miscellany and insights from our book. It's time for Hawa's Headspace. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Hawa's Headspace, part of the podcast where I literally say whatever comes to mind. For today's segment, I'm sharing with you all some superstitions about periods from around the world. Shout out to HelloClue.com for teaching me something new. I like this article because it gives different locations from around the world. Uh, One of the first ones that it mentions on here is that um, you're not allowed to perm your hair until you've had your first period. And that's a myth uh, related to the United States and the UK. In Israel, they say that you get slapped on the face when you get your first period. So you have beautiful red cheeks all your life. In Poland, they say that having sex on your period can kill your partner. In Malaysia, they say that you will need to wash your pads before throwing them out. Otherwise, ghosts will come and haunt you. In India, they say that you can't enter a kitchen or cook food for anyone else. What if you're the only person that can provide food for your children? So your children just don't eat. They also say that you must wash your hair on the first day of your period to clean yourself completely. But on the contrary, if you wash your hair, your flow will be less and it will affect affect your fertility later on in life. In Brazil, you can't walk barefoot on your period or you might get cramps. In the Philippines, uh, one of their superstitions is when you get your first period, you need to wash your face with the first menstrual blood to have clear skin. In Italy, they say that everything you cook will be a disaster and that dough won't rise. It's so funny. A lot of these actually are like related to food because in France, they say you can't make mayonnaise because it'll curdle. Also don't know how to make mayonnaise. That may be like a French thing. I don't know. And then Japan, they say you can't make sushi because you have an imbalance in taste. Uh, And in Bolivia, they say you can't cradle babies or you'll cause them to get sick. So I thought that was interesting. I hope you all enjoyed that as well. Yeah, if you're like me, you'll probably do a little bit more digging into maybe why some of these are. So join us next time to see what else is going on in my head. Now let's talk to someone who actually knows something about one of the main topics covered in this book, teen sexual health. My name is Ashton Gerber. My pronouns are they and he. Um, I'm a freshman at Tufts University. I was a peer educator with Planned Parenthood, and I'm now a sex health rep at Tufts University. And I'm very passionate about sexual and reproductive health education. Menstruation is a very big piece of the novel. 
Because of that, the book has often been challenged and banned in libraries. It's a 50-year-old book. What do you think it is about sexual health and the reproductive system that makes people so scared to talk about it with children? That's a great question. I think it's the word sexual. It's the word sex. I think we want to like maintain the innocence of children and young people as long as possible. And while that is commendable, it often leads to a state where we hyper-stigmatize sex, um, which isn't helpful to them in the long term. I think sex in itself is considered something that is dirty. And then reproductive health has kind of been pulled into that realm of like, if you're focusing on your reproductive health, it must be because you're having sex, regardless of the fact that there are many reproductive health conditions that have nothing to do with your sex life. And knowing about them can be helpful to like ensuring your long-term health and and like your best state of well-being. I think learning about birth control is super important from a young age. I think if you are menstruating, you should have an awareness of birth control. Um, regardless of if you're sexually active or not, that's quite controversial in some circles still um, because people just aren't super educated about why one might use birth control aside from the obvious. In the book, there is a scene in which uh, the girls are at school and the school decides to provide a sex ed class. The way that they do this is they get a company that makes maxi pads to come out and watch a video and talk to the girls separately about getting their period and feminine hygiene products. Uh, Looking at this depiction of sex ed, is this a good way to teach middle schoolers about their period and reproductive health? It's not my favorite thing. Um, there are things I like, there are things I don't like. First of all, I will say I like the idea of bringing in an external person, someone who's not your normal teacher to teach sex ed. I think it allows kids to ask questions that they would not otherwise ask. That said, it being like a very corporate person who is there primarily for advertising doesn't really sit very well with me. Um, I'm personally against separating boys and girls in reproductive and sex health classes. I think that it furthers the stigma around periods and makes boys like less knowledgeable and just less aware of what's happening. I think it's important for everyone to kind of be aware about what reproductive health looks like for both sexes. Um, I don't think there should be any like shame in, in menstruating. And I think that when you make it something that only the girls know about, there's kind of this implicit idea that boys should not know about this and girls should not tell boys about this. Um, And I don't think that really helps anyone. One other thing that came up in that scene was that one of the students asks about tampons and it's very quickly like shot down as a like, no, 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 that's for when you're older and we're not going to talk about that here, uh, which sent us down a rabbit hole of sort of myths about periods and feminine hygiene products. Um, I was going to ask you, do you have any pet peeves in terms of a piece of bad information about either sexual health or periods, any kind of pervasive myths that you would like to dispel? Oh boy, there are so many. I will say the tampon was it is a huge one. I still hear people ask about whether like using a tampon means you're not a virgin, pushing the idea that virginity is this social construct. There's no biological basis for it. Um, 
like even the things that people frequently cite about the hymen aren't really true. There's a lot of complicated anatomy there. Sex doesn't necessarily break the hymen. Things that are not sex can. Tampons don't take your virginity. That's a huge thing. Um, another thing I'm very passionate about is, um, like I said earlier, I think everyone should be more aware of how different forms of birth control work and the fact that there are different options. I've heard from many people who have had like really negative experiences on one form of birth control mm -hmm. and don't ever take the opportunity to research other forms because they assume that because the hormones are similar or because they work in similar ways, all of them must not work. I really think people should be educated about the different forms of birth control available to them and what benefits all of them can have. Um, like I said earlier, there's tons of reasons people might be taking birth control. And I think we should be doing a better job of educating people about what the advantages and disadvantages of each form are. And Ashton, is there anything else you would like to leave our listeners with? You know, many of our listeners are millennials that read these books when they were younger and now have children of their own in some cases. Is there anything you would like to leave with them as some words of advice on sexual education for themselves or potentially for their children going forward? Talk to your kids about what their sex ed curriculum looks like. A sex ed curriculum in the U.S. is extremely varied uh, from school to school, from county to county, from state to state. Um, don't assume that what you had is what they have. You might have to do additional research to get them information that they might need just because school-based sex education isn't the greatest. There are a variety of programs uh, that you can look into. I would recommend just like looking up local sex ed programs outside of schools if you want your kid to get more information that they might not be getting from their school. And generally just as much as you can create a safe environment to talk about your kid's health. The best thing that you can have with your kid, I think, is communication, um, just to keep them safe and to keep you aware and to have a stronger relationship in general. All right, y'all. So we are going to um, do some trivia about the history of the period. Um, so I have a couple questions with multiple choice answers. And I guess like as a team, you can confer and decide what you think the answer is. So um, and just like a friendly disclaimer, like I just Googled all this stuff. So like, don't use as medical advice. <laughs> if it's on the Internet, it has to be right. OK, so first question. I'm going to have a terrible time pronouncing this. Sphagnikins were period products made from what natural resource wrapped in gauze? Was it moss, dried leaves, charcoal, or cotton? I'm going to guess moss. moss. Is yeah. it like sphagnum moss? moss, moss thing? Yeah. Maybe it's available in salt. Yeah. Okay. I think moss. Moss. Wow, you're so smart. It is made of sphagnum moss. Hey! Which can absorb more than 20 times its own dry weight in fluids and possesses antibacterial properties. I mean, that sounds like something we could get at Whole Foods. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want your organic? <laughs> I want to see when you explain that one to your daughter. <laughs> the realists go forage for their own sphagnum moss and make their own. Okay. All but one of these was an original use of the tampon before it became used as a period product. Which one is false? So there are three options. One of them is false. Option number one, to stop bleeding in deep wounds. Option number two, to absorb chemicals and clean out test tubes in labs. Or option number three, to administer medicine through the vagina. I think I like the first one as being true. Because you still use things like packing like yeah. that for things. Yeah. I think number three they is false. They all sound feasible. 
I don't feel like you would need that on a tampon though. Suppositories are usually like something that will melt or... Suppository. That's the word I was looking for. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I mean, I think suppository, I don't know if you call it that when it's vaginal. Is it a passory? I think it is. Or is it... Uh, this is well, an educational anyways, podcast. But yes, sorry, uh, <laughs> taking a little diversion into vaginal health. Um, I think number three is false. Yeah, what let's go think? with three, three is, is false. false. Nope, that is true. Oh, oh that's the, the test tube. tube. The, the test, test tube. tube. Oh. Cleaning out test tubes. Uh, that was not true. So um, the first successful tampon patent for menstruation was in 1931 by a man, Earl Haas, and that became Tampax. Tampax. Well, good yeah. for him. Yeah, good for Earl. <laughs> Thanks, Earl. He also invented, I didn't write it down, but he invented something else that helped women. So, you know, good for him. Shout out to Earl. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. The, this is another w- spot which one is false. So, <laughs> well, okay. Okay. Maybe spot which one is true because the I'm going to give you three false pseudoscience beliefs around the period and Gosh. one true science okay (laughs) that actually exists so we're looking for the true you're looking for the true so i'm going to say four statements one is true periods contain menotoxins which can cause wine to spoil and flowers to wilt that's number one number two menstrual blood can ward off hailstorms and whirlwinds if exposed to lightning number three cold weather can make your period last longer and your pms worse or number four you can burn a toad and wear its ashes around your neck to ward off cramps Three of those are true. <laughs> no, no, I think no, three one is true. I think one, one is, true. is true. I think the first one about the wine spoiling. I yeah. mean, I feel like adding anything bacterial to wine might make it spoil. So that might be true. I don't know. I'm okay with one or three. It's one of those is true. You say three. Was that the one we were talking about? Sure. The cold sure. weather. The cold weather. Yeah. You're correct. Yay. That is true. I mean, it's true according to Cosmo <laughs> and the scientists they talk to. Um, but yes, the menotoxins were invented by, were invented is not the right word, described Discovered. by Professor Schick in the 1910s. Was that the razor guy? I, I think it might be. <laughs> the warding off hailstorms and whirlwinds. That guy had a lot of thoughts about menstrual blood. I just took one of many. That was the ancient Roman philosopher Pliny the Elder. Oh, Pliny. Oh, Pliny. Pliny. Yeah. <laughs> he had a lot of thoughts. There's also Pliny the Younger, who mm-hmm. was probably cooler than Pliny the Elder. Must have been. Pliny the Elder came up with. <laughs> and then the burning a toad is from medieval times. They used to do that to ward off cramps. Poor wow. toads. Poor toads. <laughs> yeah. All right. In which decade was the first menstrual, menstrual cup marketed? The 1850s, the 1930s, the 1980s, or the 2010s? Oh, God, marketed. I think it was the 18... I'd go early, too. I mean, they've existed for, yeah. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of years. So it's really just like, when would things be marketed? marketed I could right. see it like subtle marketing of some sort that's like... Like in the back of the exactly, or like the ladies' your newspaper pattern or <laughs> <Right>. something. <laughs> sure, we'll go with the early one, eighteen fifties. Yeah, no, the nineteen thirties. No, you were close. Um, yeah, they were invented and marketed in the nineteen thirties by a woman, um, but they did not come into fashion until the two thousands. All right, last question: Who was the first actress to say "period" on TV? Madonna in a birth control commercial. 
Candace Cameron during a very special episode of Full House, Miley Cyrus at a VMA Red Carpet Award show, or Courtney Cox in a tampon commercial. Okay, so I don't think it's Candace Cameron because I think Full House was a later show than Golden Girls. And I have a vivid memory of watching an episode of Golden Girls when I was, again, like probably like nine or ten on reruns with my mom. And it was one where Blanche goes through menopause. And so they're talking about like periods and she calls it the curse, like was what she called it when she was a kid. So I'm positive they said that in that episode. I don't think it can be Candace Cameron because I think they said it on Golden Girls before that, which means it's probably not Madonna either. It might be Courtney Cox so I'm going when Courtney she was Cox younger a doing a commercial. Yeah, because yeah. she did commercials, commercials and like mm-hmm. music videos and stuff before right. she was on Friends. Right. So. Okay, I agree. Courtney Cox. Cox. Yeah. You're correct. It was Courtney oh. Cox in 1985. Oh, she was 19. I can't believe that we didn't say it until 1985. <laughs> That's crazy to me. I mean, we still pour blue liquid into pads <laughs> on TV because apparently doing something that would actually look like blood, I guess, would offend it would, everyone's it would delicate startle the sensibilities. Senses. Yeah. All right. Well, you um, only got one question wrong. So I would say you pass. Yeah. You're yes. all certified period experts, I think. <laughs> I think our many years of experience makes <laughs> us experts. Yes. <laughs> Each episode, we ask whether our book passes the Bechdel test. The Bechdel test asks whether a work features two female characters who talk to each other about something that doesn't involve men or boys. So does Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, pass? I give it a capital N-O for most parts. Yeah, because a lot of it does tie back to boy stuff. Mm -hmm. Boys, attracting boys. Yeah. I think her interaction with her grandmother. Yeah. I think she talks to her grandmother about mm-hmm. stuff that's not boys. She talks about... She talks with Nancy about religion. her religion. Yeah, I think it passes, but yeah. I do think it's it's a surprisingly more close than you would guess in a book that's almost all female characters. <laughs> yep. As usual. Yeah. But yeah, no, I think I think there are actually quite a few scenes where she talks because half of the book is about religion, unless you're like getting really deep into analyzing <laughs> the gender constructs of religion. Uh, you know, I think I think that gives a lot of opportunity to talk to other women about something that's not a man. So as an overall, there's no weight because it does have areas where it's not talking. They're not talking about boys yeah men. it's a very low bar if it happens one time oh yeah <laughs> well then yes you're right gosh yeah. what books don't do it at least once so many oh, sad, sad a shocking number thank god for grandma yeah <laughs> good job sylvia and the like bra salesperson. Yes. i think that also <laughs> rescues it there's no talk of boys during the bra sale right <laughs> Well, that's it for this episode of These Books Made Me. Join us next time when we'll discuss a book where a man swaps his name for that of a pastry. If you think you know which book we're tackling next, drop us a tweet. We're at PGCMLS on Twitter and hashtag These Books Made Me.